You're listening to the Urban Astronomer Podcast. This show brought to you by Constellation Media. Hi everybody, I'm Alan Fassfeldt and you are listening to the final episode of this season of the Urban Astronomer Podcast. Twelve episodes down and I am ready for a break. I mean... It's not that I don't like chatting to you, and it's not like I don't get a lot of satisfaction out of the show, but it is hard work. And I'm busy trying to get a new business off the ground, so I'm definitely feeling the grind a bit. But don't worry, we'll be back next year with more of the same great combination of interviews with interesting astronomers and science explainy bits. Speaking of which, that is what I have for you today. Explaining the science out of two questions that were posed to me back when I was first planning out this season. They're really great questions, which is why I saved them for this final episode. The first, posed by Anzette Duplessis, asks why it is that the stars all seem to have the same colour, which I loved because I didn't understand what she was asking at first. The colours don't seem to be the same at all, to my trained astronomer's eyes. Although, of course, it eventually struck me that the difference is that I have been trained to see them, because while the colours are definitely there, and most people with good colour vision can see them just fine, They're still very subtle, and there are a number of reasons why they might not be obvious to a casual stargazer. The second question came from much closer to home. The call came from inside the house, in fact, when my own wife and occasional co-host asked me what space is like. And the more I thought about that question, the deeper it seemed to get. So I got a chance to venture off of the pure science and into something and into something closer to drunken philosophical speculation. Sort of. I didn't have a drink. It was fun to work out what I was going to say, and it's a bit unstructured, but hopefully it's at least instructional. So, given that you are probably done hearing me talk about the answers I'm going to give, let's cut straight to me actually giving the answers. A few months ago, when I was polling my Twitter followers for questions that they would like to hear answered in the show, I got this very interesting question from a science journalist I've known for a few years. I saved it for the very end of the season because I love the question so much. I love it because it challenges the sorts of assumptions that are taught to us as astronomers from the very beginning of our training. And she asked why it is that all the stars appear to be the same colour. And yet when I go out at night and look up, they quite plainly are not the same colour at all. Some are a striking orangey-red, others are bluish. Most are white, but even they are often distinctly different shades of white. In fact, some of the stars' colours are so distinctive that I can usually make a pretty good guess at which one I'm looking at, even if it's just through a gap in the clouds and I can't see the surrounding constellations. We know for a fact that stars do shine in different colours. Long exposure photography and spectrographic analysis make this extremely obvious. Astronomers have known about the colours for centuries, and they've been able to use the colour to learn about these stars since at least 1800. That was the year that William Herschel did experiments with light, where he used a prism to split a beam of white light into all of its colours, and then put thermometers in each colour. Now, I don't have any idea why he did this either, or what he thought he would find, but it's quite possible that he was just tinkering, trying all sorts of things just to see if anything would happen. So he did this, and he found that the different thermometers showed different temperatures, with the lowest temperatures being on the blue light and the highest in red. And what was really interesting was that a thermometer which wasn't lit up at all, but was just past the red light, showed the highest temperature of all of them. He had just discovered infrared light, 
which we tend to think of as heat radiation, but is really just the wavelength of light that carries the most energy at the sorts of temperatures which we experience here on Earth. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The main takeaway here is that he established that different colors of lights correspond to different temperatures. But then this was already pretty well known. The simplest blacksmith in the smallest village could have told him that as you heat up metal, it starts off dark, and then begins to glow faintly in a deep cherry red, and as you keep warming it, it becomes brighter and more orange and then yellow, and eventually, if your furnace gets that hot, it shines a bright white, which you can feel as heat on your skin. So, a few decades later, a Scottish physicist called Belfour Stewart spent much of his career performing experiments to try to understand this heat radiation that Herschel had found. He tried shining lights on different colored objects, and he found that white objects warmed up the most slowly when lights were shone upon them, and darker objects warmed faster, and objects that had been blackened with soots warmed up the fastest of all. This made sense because a matte black object doesn't reflect much light, which is why it looks black, and that means that it absorbs more of the energy from the light, whereas a white object reflects a lot of it away instead of absorbing it. A year later, the rather more famous German physicist Gustav Kirchhoff did the same experiments and he got the same results. But he also found that when these objects were all heated to the same temperature and the heat was then turned off, the black objects cooled down the fastest. And if you put thermometers near those objects, the black objects radiated the most heat, which explained why they cooled so quickly. So, based on what he saw, he develops a theory, a mathematical equation that we now call Kirchhoff's Law, which states that simply, since objects radiate and absorb heat radiation, any object that has a stable temperature must obviously be absorbing from its environment the exact same amount of heat energy that it is radiating outwards. And that if you could make a hypothetical object that was perfectly radiative or absorptive, then the amount of radiation emitted would be determined by the temperature of the object and nothing else. Now, such a hypothetical surface would appear to be perfectly black, and so he coined the term black body to describe that sort of perfectly black object and the radiation associated with it. It's become almost a throwaway phrase in science communications these days, so it's worth pointing out that in the real universe, black bodies don't exist, because black bodies are a hypothetical ideal that is useful to work out physics problems. Real objects have actual surfaces, and nothing is perfectly absorptive or radiative, so nothing is perfectly 100% black. Still, most objects are close enough to black bodies that black body radiation is a pretty decent approximation for what they actually do. And it's close enough that we can get useful information about things, like their temperature, from the radiation that they emit. Anyway, fast forward a few more decades and we find the famous Max Planck, or Planck, which is apparently how he would pronounce it in his native German, uh, who used the brand new physics discoveries that made him one of the fathers of quantum theory to work out exactly how this radiation works. The formula he came up with, the one that we use today, is a pretty complex beast, but it lets you work out for any given temperature what kind of radiation a black body would emit. So if I can simplify pretty grossly here, any object in the universe that has a temperature, any temperature at all, contains within itself heat energy. And that energy radiates outwards into the space surrounding that object in the form of electromagnetic radiation. A room temperature object, like a human being, say, radiates very tiny amounts of energy in the radio spectrum, a bit more in the microwave band, more still in the mid-infrared, and then it tapers off again. 
A hotter object, like a bar of iron heated close to melting point, would have its peak radiation at a much higher frequency in the near-infrared, where it pumps out a great deal more energy so that its emissions in visible wavelengths like red and yellow are still fairly bright, causing it to glow in orangey-yellow. The glowing tungsten filament in a halogen light bulb emits even more energy at a shorter wavelength still, making for an intensely bright white light. So, by splitting the light emitted by a black body and simply measuring which wavelength shines the brightest, you can work those equations backwards and find the temperature of the object. If you know what the object is made of, you can compensate for how much it differs from the theoretical ideal of a true black body to get a more accurate measurement, but in most cases it's not that important. The point is that this is how astronomers knew for so long that the Sun, which emits white light, has a surface temperature of a little under 6,000 degrees Celsius. Redder stars are cooler than that, bluer stars are hotter, and if you know the temperature of a star's surface and its size, you can then work backwards to see how hot it is at its core and, and begin a whole detective puzzle process of working out its mass and the types of nuclear reactions powering them. If you ever wondered how we worked out those things, I shared a few episodes back on how stars work and where black holes come from. This is where it all started. So this is great. We've learned that stars have colours and that those colours reveal the star's temperature. That doesn't explain why so many people don't even realise that those colours exist. So let's go on to a different track. The anatomy of the human eye. Your visual system is a pretty fantastic bit of engineering. Starting with the eye itself, which is a sort of biological camera, and ending in the visual centres of the brain, which serve as an extremely powerful image processing and enhancement system. So the optical parts of the eye are the lens, the pupil, and the retina. The lens is exactly what it sounds like, a curved, transparent thing which focuses light onto the retina. The retina is the sensor. It's packed with different types of photosensitive cells that, through some pretty fast-acting and complex chemistry, converts light into electrical signals which get sensed to the brain. And the pupil is an adjustable opening just ahead of the lens which controls how much light can pass through. Now the retina itself isn't very impressive compared to the sensors in modern digital cameras. It can only distinguish a fairly narrow range of brightnesses, so there are a number of mechanisms to adjust the incoming lights to something that it can handle. The first of these we've already mentioned. The pupil can open wide if it's too dark for the retina, and closes almost completely if it's too bright. But there's another chemical system in the retina itself, which boosts sensitivity for low light conditions. When it's simply too dark for the sensors on the retina to see anything, it begins secreting a substance which enhances the light sensing chemistry in those sensory cells, gradually increasing the sensitivity until, after about half an hour, it's at maximum power. At this stage, a person with good eyes can often manage to read newspaper headlines by starlight alone. But this kind of sensitivity is dangerous. Bright lights can damage your eyes when they're cranked up so high, so that chemical breaks down very rapidly when exposed to light. So if you're dark adapted and somebody turns on a torch or your phone screen activates to let you know you've got a message, all that sensitivity immediately goes away and you're left blinded for another half hour while your eyes begin the process all over again. So that's the first set of tricks that your eyes use to overcome the limitations of the sensors on your retina. The second trick is the use of two different kinds of sensor, rods and cones. Of the two, rods are very sensitive. They can detect much lower levels of light and are very fast reacting. If you're under a flickering fluorescent light, it's the rods that detect the flicker and give you a headache. The cones, meanwhile, are slower and less sensitive. No flicker, no low light vision. 
but they can distinguish colour, which the rods can't do. Now, the cones are all clustered in the centre of the retina so that when you look directly at something, you can see it's in fine detail and full colour, but the rest of the retina is populated mostly with rods. So if you look purely at the signals leaving your eye, you'd find a wide field view that's a little fuzzy and black and white and flickering as every bit of motion gets picked up. But in the very centre, it's colourful and detailed, but if things move too fast, the picture can't keep up and it blurs. The third trick is to use some very heavy-duty video processing in the brain itself. It takes that signal, colorizes the black and white bits, keeps the eye scanning unconsciously so that you get details from all around and not just the bits that you think you're focusing on, and essentially photoshops everything you see. It works quite well too, but it can be fooled. Optical illusions are generally created by people who study how this processing all works and have hacked it to create impossible pictures. Anyway, I'm off topic again. Let's go back to the question, why do the stars all seem to have the same color? So now I can answer in two parts. First, the stars are really dim compared to normal daylight conditions. If you go outside in a regular old suburban neighborhood with the street lights and the house lights and security floodlights shining, your eyes are never exposed to real darkness. And so dark adaptation doesn't happen. So when you look up at the stars, the cones are just not getting enough lights to fire. The rods are doing all the work, and so you're mostly seeing in black and white. The colors are there, but they're washed out by the fact that the cones, which see color, just aren't able to handle the low light levels. So this means that if you want to see the colors, you need to actually look really hard and learn to distinguish those faint shades. And once you've got it, the colors become quite obvious. It's not that different to an artist or a paint specialist looking at two white paints and being able to see immediately that in fact the one is actually eggshell and the other is ivory, while all I see is white and also white, but slightly darker. The stars are not the same, but to our eyes they are pretty similar, and without the experience to see the different shades, some people just don't notice the colors. A few months ago, my dear wife and friend Catherine turned to me and asked, what's it like out there though? When I asked her what she was talking about, she said, you know, space, what's it like? So that is the final science explaining bit question for this season of the Urban Astronomer podcast. What's it like out there in the depths of space? I'll give you a moment to think about this, just to try and picture what space is like. Whatever you've come up with, it's probably black, dark, maybe with a strikingly beautiful nebula in the background, or maybe you're in one of Star Trek's standard orbits around an M-class planet, but the view in most directions is still just blackness. So let's start there. Space, as Douglas Adams so famously wrote, is big, really big. Take the longest distance you have ever seen on Earth, perhaps from the top of a mountain or a tall office building, and from up there you can see way, way further than you could see from the ground, because of course the Earth is spherical and your higher vantage point gives you a longer line of sight to the horizon. But that distance you're looking at is, well, it's nothing. 100 kilometers, maybe, tops. If you're looking out of the window in an airliner, then the distance is way further, but it doesn't feel that far. It stops being real because the atmosphere itself begins to lose transparency when you look through that much of it. But I suspect it's more than that. I think there's a psychological limit to the sorts of distances that we can imagine. Along with our gorilla and chimpanzee cousins, 
We evolved from an ape-like creature on the African plains millions of years ago. The greatest distance we were ever likely to see was a few tens of kilometers, if there weren't any trees or hills on the way. Anything further than that, we just haven't evolved the circuitry in our brains to process it correctly. So, we use maths. We work out the numbers and we throw them around as if they mean anything to anybody. Now, I don't want to say that it's hopeless, of course, or that we can never understand our place in the universe or anything like that. And I certainly don't buy into that popular science idea that we're supposed to feel small and insignificant against the scale of the universe because I've never felt that. I feel small next to a really tall man, sure, but the universe is different. It's crazy to compare yourself to a planet or a solar system or a galaxy or the entire universe. It's a category error. And I just can't conjure up that feeling. And I'm sure many people do feel that, and that's fine, everybody's got their own perspective. I'm certainly not going to judge them for it, and it's certainly not going to say that they're wrong for feeling it. I just don't feel it myself, so I can't honestly talk from that point of view. But just because we can't internally visualize something as big as a planet, just because our imaginations are incapable of rendering a world that we can inhabit on that scale, doesn't mean that we can't understand it on a different level. We know it's real, of course, because we live on a planet. We can't visualize a distance past the horizon, yet we fly, or drive, or even walk past it all the time. We simply have to use other mental tools, apart from visualizing. So, one of these tools is time. How long does it take to get there? And this is useful. It's easy. It's intuitive. That oasis in the desert is three days travel in that direction, and you can use that, you can navigate with it. The only way it fails is when you travel by some other method. For example, I know that the local ice rink is about a 10-minute drive away, but I have absolutely no idea at all how long it would take to walk. A far more modern way to measure distance, and by modern I mean within recorded human history, is to have some reference unit that you can use to measure. Let's call it a stadia, or a mile, or a kilometer. And while it's still hard to visualize what 100 miles actually is in your head, you do know that it takes about a minute to drive a mile at highway speeds, and maybe 15 or 20 minutes to walk it. And now you can do some basic sums in your head, and then those numbers start to mean something. You do know that it takes about half a minute to drive a kilometer at highway speeds and maybe 15 or 20 minutes to walk it. And now you can do some basic sums in your head and then those numbers start to mean something. 100 miles on foot? Well, if you're in good condition, you can probably do it in under a week. But once you leave the planet, even those tools don't work. The Earth is 150 million kilometers from the sun. How long does that take to walk? The distances are all, all of them, utterly unimaginable. They're just numbers, and we count the zeros to get an idea of whether something is far or close relative to some other crazy space distance. But consider this. At an average walking speed of about 5 kilometers per hour for a healthy adult human, it would take 30 million hours to walk to the sun, or over 3,400 years. It's crazy to even try and imagine that. And what about a trip to Sirius, the brightest star in the sky after the sun? It's not the closest star, it's the sixth closest, but I like it because it's so bright. Now that star is 555,000 astronomical units away, which just means that it's 550,000 times further from us than the sun. An astronomical unit is the average distance from the sun to the earth. So if walking to the sun would take 3,400 years, walking to Sirius 
would take 555,000 times longer than that. And this is just our local neighborhood. So after all of that, I would say that the most defining characteristic of space is that it is lonely. If you're out there, you are impossibly far away from anybody else. You are alone. You are isolated. Well, okay, unless you're on the International Space Station. Aside from the fact that you'd always have between two and five other people in there with you, you're also only about 400 kilometers above the surface of the Earth. Although this changes uh, thanks to atmospheric drag and regular boosts from visiting spacecraft. In other words, if I'm in Johannesburg and the ISS passes directly overhead, I'm closer to those astronauts than I am to my old high school in Pietermaritzburg. But I suspect that the low Earth orbit isn't really what she was asking about. So space is lonely. It's isolated and it's remote for the most part. What else do people imagine? Okay, so a typical scene in science fiction movies is the guy getting spaced, tossed out of an airlock into the naked vacuum where they instantly freeze solid because space is cold. But is it? In fact, space has no temperature at all because only matter has a temperature and vacuums are the absence of matter. So there's nothing that has a temperature that you can measure. And this isn't just some clever science technicality either because if you were to dump somebody into space like in those movies and shield them from the sun's radiation, they would only cool down very slowly. Anybody who's ever used a thermos flask, one of the proper old-fashioned ones with the metal outer shell and a glass silver-plated lining and a vacuum between those two layers, knows that a vacuum is an excellent insulator. So while the body does radiate its heat away, it'll do so very slowly and take a long, long time to freeze. I described this grisly subject in great detail in episode 5, so if you'd like to learn more about what vacuum exposure does to people, go give that episode a listen. So if space has no temperature, what does it have? Why is it that the surface of the moon can be hundreds of degrees hot in the day and hundreds below zero at night? Well, one thing space has a lot of is radiation. And if you're near a star, like the moon is, being close to the Earth, then all that combined radio, infrared and visible and ultraviolet radiation can dump quite a lot of energy into things. We only feel a tiny fraction of that here on Earth because we have such efficient insulation in our atmosphere to protect us, but the moon doesn't. So you take dark grey rock and expose it to the heat of the sun, it will of course heat up. And with no atmosphere to blow over it and carry some of the heat away, it gets very hot, hotter than boiling water. And when nighttime comes, again with no atmosphere to insulate it and return the warmth, that heat radiates away into space. And yes, like I said earlier, it's a slow process. But nighttime on the moon lasts for half a month. That's plenty time for that rock to cool down and it can get as low as 173 degrees Celsius below freezing. In fact, there are some areas on the moon's poles, deep inside craters, where the sun's light never reaches, and those areas get as cold as minus 238 degrees Celsius. So, sure, space has no temperature. But things floating free in space can have any temperature at all, depending on how close they are to a star. Space is also supposed to be silent, a place where nobody can hear you scream, because there's no atmosphere, no medium to carry sound waves. Anybody who's been lucky enough to go to a science expo or attend the right open days at a university physics department will have seen the experiments where they put a ringing bell or a loudspeaker or something noisy inside a vacuum jar 
and they then pump out the air. And as the vacuum gets stronger, the sound fades and then vanishes. Even though you can still quite plainly see the speaker vibrating or the clapper banging into the side of the bell. Then they open the valves, the air rushes back in, and the noise comes back. But you are unlikely to experience that in space because if you were exposed to vacuum, you would pass out from oxygen loss in seconds. And unless you hear your hearts pounding in your ears as you go, you'd probably enjoy a few moments of silence. But if you're in a spaceship, or a space station, or even just in a space suit, it's actually really noisy in there. There is a lot of machinery constantly running, pumping air and running experiments, and crewmates working out in the gym, trying to keep their body from deteriorating in low gravity. Fans constantly blow, blowing air for you to breathe, blowing air inside computers to keep them cool, constant unexpected bangs and pings as micrometeorites impact or as bits of the craft expand and cool as they rotate in and out of the hot sunshine. So not very quiet. Okay, what else? Yes, gravity. What we call zero G does not mean that there is no gravity. Because as Newton told us, gravity extends forever to the edges of the universe. Instead, you are technically in freefall, what we call microgravity, where there is no resistance to gravity and so you experience weightlessness. That can be tremendous fun, or it can be hideously nauseating because some people are prone to motion sickness. Your sense of balance comes from your inner ear, constantly sensing acceleration in gravity, and your brain uses the view through your eyes to tell the difference between the two and work out what direction you're facing and if you're about to fall. Motion sickness comes from when the discrepancy between those two inputs becomes too great and the brain can't make sense of it and you feel nauseous. Motion sickness medication is standard equipment for astronauts. But we need gravity for more than just that. Our bodies hate waste, which is why they store excess energy and want to be fat. And it's why athletes become unfit if they stop training. Bones and muscles are expensive to maintain. They use energy and consume resources. So when you're in space and you're not using them, the body sees an opportunity to reduce costs by downsizing. Muscles waste away, bones get leached of their calcium, you become lighter and weaker. The heart doesn't have to pump blood all the way up from your feet to your head anymore, so it becomes weaker. Astronauts who return to Earth after long trips are often unable to walk without help and need months or even years of physical therapy to regain their former condition. So after gravity, yeah, radiation. I mentioned this earlier when talking about temperature, but the radiation in space isn't just heat and light from the sun, it's the solar wind, raw protons ejected at high speed from the sun's surface. It's cosmic rays, subatomic particles blasted out of supernovae at close to the speed of light. It's gamma radiation, x-rays, all sorts of bad stuff that kills living things. Astronauts in low Earth orbits can survive for a long time, suffering only an elevated cancer risk because they are still within the Earth's magnetic field, which deflects away most of the bad stuff, and the metal skin of the station blocks a lot of what's left. But in deep space, you need shielding just to avoid a painful death from radiation sickness. And shielding is heavy, and when traveling in space, heavy equals expensive. So, what is space like? Yes, it's dark. No, it's not quiet. It can be literally any temperature at all, which means it's probably a temperature that will kill you. There is no air to breathe, there's no gravity to keep your body from breaking down its own muscles and bones, and there's enough radiation to make you extremely sick and then kill you. What's space like? 
well. It's a beautiful, fascinating place to study, to look at through telescopes and to learn about, but I wouldn't want to live there. And I guess that's it then. The end of the season. I've got to say how great it has been working through the season. My cunning plan, suggested to me by Elna at one of the Podmeets gatherings I attend, worked. Basically, it was to stop trying to do this continuous flow of weekly episodes because that could lead to burnout. And I mean, I didn't burn out, but I definitely lost my passion, and long-time listeners would have noticed how episodes started coming out later and later until at one point there might be a whole month or two between shows. She suggested moving to seasons, planning out a set number of episodes in advance and pushing them out, and then taking breaks to rest, plan, rebuild my passion for the project. And you know, it worked. The occasional episode has come out a day late when I've been unusually busy, but on the whole, I've stayed excited about the show and had fun doing it. And I hope you've enjoyed listening to it as well. I lost a lot of listeners as that first season stretched on, as it became less and less reliable, but this season has shown real growth and we're almost back at our peak. So to all of you who started listening during this season, thanks for coming. You showed me that I was on the right track. And... Anybody who might have left when they returned, I'm so sorry for messing you around, and thanks for forgiving me. And for that special for you who've been around from the very beginning, back when we launched in 2017, well, you guys are simply the best audience a guy like me could hope for. Thank you. Thank all of you. Now, this is normally where I would start suggesting that you go to my website at urban-astronomer.com and support me by clicking the Patreon link, but honestly... I think we're having a special moment here, and I don't want to ruin it. So I won't mention the Patreon link, where you can pledge a small monthly donation in support of the show. I won't mention it at all. So then, what happens next? Well, Season 3 should launch in the first quarter of next year. I'm still lining up guests for us to talk to, and of course I will need you all to send in your questions for me to write science explainy bits about... Uh, send those to podcast at urban-astronomer.com and I will add them to the list. Our guests so far include a research astronomer from the Hartzebeershoek Radio Observatory, which is built only a few kilometers from where I used to live up until a few months ago, and an education researcher who is interested in astronomy education as a tool to improve scientific literacy. If there's anybody you'd like to hear me talk to, or if you yourself have a personal connection to astronomy in Southern Africa, you are welcome to invite yourself. Don't be shy. Oh, and one last thing, by the way. I do other science communication stuff beyond this podcast. I'm a fairly regular host at the Weekly Space Hangouts, run in conjunction with Fraser Kane from Universe Today and CosmoQuest. It's a live show, broadcast weekly, and you can watch it on Twitch or YouTube. The show is based in North America, so if you're a South African like me, you're going to have to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning every Thursday to catch the live show. But if that's too hard, you can just follow me on Twitter, where I will be announcing the shows that I'm on, along with links to watch the recorded version. Uh, my Twitter handle is at uastronomer. If you don't like video, well, I have also just joined the staff at Space Africa, an online news service dedicated to space activities in and around Africa. They're based in Nigeria, so I feel quite privileged to have been accepted as a South African journalist, but I will be writing regular articles for them as well. 
I'll post links to each one as it's published so that you can read and share them on social media. Anyway, that is a lot of news for a farewell episode, so let me cut myself short here and say thanks again for listening. We'll be back sometime early next year and I'll release teasers on this channel to keep you informed and regular updates on social media. So until then, cheerio and clear skies.